Masechet Sota, Daf Mem Zayin, some fantastic agada. We left off talking about the importance of accompanying someone when they are leaving, they're, especially if they're leaving the city. Um, and anytime one should accompany a rabbi, a teacher, a student, a colleague, we talked about how far they should be accompanied. Um, and we brought a number of examples. And the last one was regarding Elisha. He, when he traveled from Yericho to Bet El, nobody accompanied him. And then it was a terrible incident of some children who were calling him Baldy, Baldy, and he uh, got upset, cursed them, and bears came and uh, ate 42 of, and, and killed 42 of them. A terrible story. Um, but if someone had accompanied uh, Elisha, then they would have been able to intervene, told the kids to go home, and then that would not have happened. Once we bring up the story, we're going to go and analyze it further. So what exactly happened there? So when they called him Baldy, it wasn't, maybe he was bold, maybe he wasn't, but it wasn't literally because of that, but rather that um, figuratively he made the place bald. Uh, what happened? If we look right before the story here, here's where he goes um, to Bethel. Immediately before that, in um, in Yericho, the people of the city said, "Look, the uh, water here is bad, right? The land causes bereavement." And so Elisha um, uh, told them how to uh, sweeten the put salt, and they were he was able to. Um, make the water better, um, healed the water, and so now everything is fine. So the Midrash is filling in. What's the connection between these stories here and saying, apparently, um, the people of Bet El supplied water for the people of Yericho because the water was no good in Yericho. And now that Elisha uh, healed the water of Yericho, they no longer needed to buy the water from Bet El, and Bet El was now uh, um, bald from, uh, from having that business. And so they were upset at Elisha. That's why they were. Um, that's why they were bothering him. Okay. Now, my unadim ketanim. What does this phrase mean? I mean, it's a It just means they were young children. Um, but in halachic terms, na'ad is twelve year old or so on. Katan is under that. So what? What are they? Are they na'adim or are they ketanim? So this too we're taking not literally, which also helps read the story because right, what is what's Elisha doing? Going and calling upon bears to kill young kids just because they're uh, just because they're uh, uh, poking fun at his bald head. That's not really a good reason to have them killed. So therefore we say, no, it doesn't, na'arim doesn't mean that they were young, but rather that they are emptied, emptied out of mitzvot. So these might have been whatever age they were, um, empty people. Ketanim shayum emana, and they weren't young either. Rather, they were, in what way were they small? They were small in their face, in, in their faith. And so you have these, maybe they were adults, and these were uh, low lives. People had no mitzvot and no, uh, uh, no faith, and they're coming. They just lost their, their, their a customer for their, free water, for their water business. They could have helped for free instead, you know, if another neighbor didn't have water. Anyway, so they're complaining about their loss of business, and they're coming to this great prophet and, uh, and, and uh, complaining to him and calling him names. Oh, so um, 
it puts the uh, puts a completely different context upon the story. So or another interpretation. Na'arim, they were young, uh, but uh, not so young. The problem is that they uh, acted like little children. That's the problem. They were like little children. Okay. Wait a second. How do you know that Na'arim means that they were emptied of mitzvot. Um, maybe it means that they were from a place um, called Ne'oran. This is another story um, um, about Elisha also, that uh, the Arameans came out and they took captive from Eretz Yisrael um, they took captive, uh, says a minor young woman, which again in Peshat just means they uh, took a, a young Jewish woman captive. Um, that'll be important for the rest of the story because this is this young uh, woman becomes a maidservant um, who eventually uh, tells Naaman that uh, she he should go to uh, to Israel and to Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. So she plays an important role. Um, but anyway, the question here is in term halachic terms, Naara is twelve and so or so. Ketana is less than that. So what is she Naara or is she Ketana? Because Naara uktana ketana No, so we resolve it there uh, by saying that she was in fact a child and she's called Naara because she's from a a city called Ne'oran. And we know the city today. It's Ne'oran. It's near Jericho. You can go find it. Hatam. Uh, so why don't we say here the same thing and resolve that, in fact, they were uh, children and it was called Na'ad. They're called Ne'arim because they were from this place. Um, the answer is Hatam la mefarash mekoma hacha mefarash mekoman. There, regarding this young girl, doesn't say a place. So that's why we can say that Na'ara means that she was from that place. Whereas here, in this story about the, um, the, 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 the boys that were making fun of Elisha, it says their place. It says they're from Yericho. So if they're from Yericho, you can't say that they were from a different place. So that's what we have to give that interpretation above. Pasuk says that Elisha turned behind them, saw these kids, and cursed them in the name of Hashem. What did he saw? What did he see? Uh, four interpretations. Maybe means literally he looked at them, he gave them the stare, the stare of death. As uh, Rabban Shimon Gamliel says, uh, wherever uh, the sages place their eyes against a certain person, like, you know, the Bishon Baruchai's laser eyes that burnt everything up, um, so they will cause either death or poverty if they look at someone the wrong way. Or saw, is not seeing uh, physically, he saw something about them, something about their past, that they all um, were uh, conceived on Yom Kippur when uh, uh, um, uh, husbands and wives are not allowed to be together. And so they were all conceived in sin, and that resulted in these bad traits that they had. He turned around, he saw that they had these uh, these locks, these braids, 
like the non-Jew, like non-Jews have. These kids were assimilated, having these these types of um, pagan braids. Or he saw that they have not even a little bit of a mitzvah, right? So um, again, all these explanations are helping us to contextualize the story because it wouldn't be right or make sense to just have little kids killed. Rather, these are people who had, you know, a, a, a terrible past and had no mitzvot and had nothing, no redeeming qualities and therefore were deserving of the fate that they got. Hold on, even if they don't have mitzvot, maybe their descendants will have mitzvot. Maybe there's potential and give them a chance. Be patient. No, Elisha saw that they have not even the potential for mitzvot, not them, not their descendants for all generations, and therefore better that they not be around. Okay. And so then, as a result, these bears came out of the forest and tore apart 42 children. So this happened miraculously because there weren't any bears actually around there and these bears suddenly appeared. So whether this is a single miracle or a double miracle. One who said that it was a single miracle says there was a forest in fact nearby and uh, their bears lived live in forests but there was still uh, a miracle because there was no bears in that forest. Um, so the miracle is that yes there was a forest but bears appeared um, in the forest and so that's the one miracle whereas one says double miracle says that in that place in the Jericho Tibet El area there was not even a forest and so a forest had to be created and the bears too also had to be created and so that's a double miracle we ask wait a second if you're going to say once you're going to say it's a double miracle what's what's the point of a miracle of creating a forest right if the miracle is elisha needs to uh, give make a punishment so just have bears suddenly appear and that's sufficient miracle that'll do the job how is it how does it add more to the miracle to have a forest and that the bears come out of the forest and the answer is because usually bears are frightened to come out into civilization apparently this is true um, if a human being comes into the bears domain then the bears will attack but bears generally stay in their domain in the forest and don't come out to where uh, human beings are living and so the double miracle here is that not only did bears appear but these bears uh, overcame their uh, natural fear and they came out into the civil into civilization and went and attacked these kids uh, people whoever they were now, um, we have to still, the Gemara still wants to explain further, right? What, what sin, what terrible thing? It already gave a number of explanations, but we're adding even more, right? Because this is a very serious uh, uh, punishment for these 42, um, you know, uh, 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 kids, however old they were, people that had bad backgrounds, bad futures, right? Still, what was the further background of it? So Rabbi Hanina says it's because of the 42 korbanot that Balak Melech Moab sacrificed with Bilam, even though they had negative intention, they were making these korbanot on all the different mountains in order to curse B'nai Israel. Nevertheless, it was a positive, there's a positive aspect to it that they made these nice korbanot. 
and um, because of in, in merit of that, uh, this um, the, even though the curse did not happen at that time during Bil'am, but it did um, um, fall upon Israel eventually in this form of these 42 kids being killed by bears. Ini, now we have a, a, a question because there's another statement about these 42 uh, sacrifices. We saw this earlier in the Masechet that a person should always learn Torah, even if it's not for its own sake, uh, if it's for even if it's for an external reward, because by doing it not for its own sake, you'll come to do it lishma. Um, and so here, uh, an example of doing something not for the right intention, but it's still being worthwhile. And this is even a more extreme example than learning Torah. Learning Torah is a good thing, right? So even if you're doing it for self-interest, for money, um, still it's a positive thing. Um, but So it's still okay because it'll lead to, to a good thing. We see even more extreme example that in merit of the 42 korbanot that Balak uh, made, who he was doing it for negative intention to try to curse them, yet it was still a positive act in and of itself. Uh, in merit for that, he got to um, have as one of his descendants, Ruth, whose uh, who's, uh, one of her descendants was King Shalomo. And King Shalomo um, gave a thousand olot. Um, and Rabbi Yoseh ben Choni said, Ruth uh, comes from, she is a Moabite, and in fact, she's from Eglon, who is the son of Balak. So she's a direct descendant of Balak. And so this, here we see a different interpretation that also saying that it's good that they made these sacrifices, Balak. But here it says he got rewarded for it by having Ruth and Shalomo be part of his descendants. Um, and so that's different from what we said up here, that he got in reward for in reward for that, of those korbanot, um, they still, the curse still worked somewhat in that it, it led to the eventual destruction of these 42 kids. So which one is it? And the answer is, um, because, yes, see, there is a good and bad aspect to what he did, Balak. On the one hand, he made the sacrifices, and that was a good thing. So he gets rewarded with having Shalomo, who gave even more sacrifices. So his good sacrifices had Midah Kenegin Midah, even more reward for more sacrifices, and going through Ruth. So that's the positive part. The negative part is that even though the curse that he had said did not work then, and was actually the opposite, Bilam ended up blessing them, nevertheless, because his intention was for cursing, and he gave these uh, these um, sacrifices, so a bit of his curse uh, remained and eventually applied in the time of Elisha. Uh, so this is an interesting and a somewhat difficult Agadah, that an evil person's uh, evil desire to curse without any, um, without any good rationale um, should still come true somehow. Right, but maybe this, that combined with the fact that these people were low lives and they did negative things and uh, and so on. So then that power, with a so-called power um, or application of that curse, um, it, it could did um, eventually um, apply at this time.
Alright, um, now uh, related to um, Elisha in that scene, um, the people in Bethel come and say to Elisha, right, this place is good, as you can see, however, the water is bad, the land miscarries. So we're going back to that story to analyze it. This is very confusing. The people say, this is the best, what a very pleasant city this is here in Yericho, except that the water is terrible and everyone's, die, everyone's dying. Well, what's good about the city if it has bad water and everybody dies? So Rabbi Hanin says that the grace of a place is upon its inhabitants. In other words, when people live in a certain place, they just they, uh, develop a, a a connection to it, a love for it, even if it's a terrible place, right? Even if you're living in the middle of Brooklyn with, you know, garbage and um, and crime and whatever, but because you're living here and you grew up here and you're used to it, so you end up having an attachment and a love for it, even if it's really actually a bad place. I think it's interesting that, so to be Hanin, that talks about the, about Chen. And similarly, conquers all and he only sees the good in her and similarly when you buy something right then you only see the good and uh, you see it in a positive light um, this is a positive feedback reinforcement um, that uh, when once someone makes a decision uh, psychologists talk about this a lot right after you make a decision then your brain is pre-programmed to uh, convince yourself that it was a good decision so if you decide to live in the place or buy something or marry someone then you're automatically going to um, see the good in that decision that you made, which makes sense. That uh, it's, it is a, a a positive thing that will uh, lead to general happiness. Uh, although sometimes it could blind us for the negative things that might be in a certain place, um, and um, and uh, even if we should maybe move. Okay. Now back to Elisha. He was sick three times. Elisha was a was punished for uh, causing the bears to go and kill these children. So even though we just kind of tried to give some justification for it, that they were evildoers and had no future and had no misfot and all that, um, but nevertheless, Elisha should not have done this. Um, and he got sick because of it. And second, because he rejected Gehazi with two hands, utterly, totally not giving Gehazi any possibility of return. We'll talk more about the Gehazi story in a minute. And the final sickness is, was he was just a regular natural sickness that he eventually died for. And we derive from the triple statement here that Elisha um, was sick from a sickness and he died. So the repetition here be, um, became, this is the one sickness, another sickness, and then it doesn't say three times, but this is so we take that as a third sickness that eventually caused his death.
So let's analyze. Tenor Rabbanan Olam Tehsimol Doha Ve'yamin Mekarab Mekarabet Ve'lo Kelisha Shedechavol Legechazi Beshteyadav Ve'lo Kiyosho Ben Pedachia Shedechavol Le'yeshu HaNosri Mitamidav Beshteyadav So here is a very important teaching. A person should always have the left hand push away and the right hand bring close. Whenever you're in a difficult situation with a child, a student, a friend, where you have to give, they do something wrong and you have to give some kind of criticism and it's unacceptable what they did. So yes, you have to express that it's unacceptable and you have to push them away. And however, if you push them away with two hands, then they'll say, oh, look, I'm completely rejected. And they'll just say, there's no hope for me. And they'll go off and do even worse because there's no teshuva. So the advice of the rabbis is, on the one hand, with the weaker left hand, you push away and say, this is no good, I cannot accept this. On the, at the same time, you have to show that um, I still love you unconditionally. And the right hand should say, there's a way back. You can make teshuva, and you're still connected, you're still part of the family, you're still part of the community or nation. And so you need both of that, um, because that you have to express what's wrong, but you also have to allow a possibility for return. And so that's the proper way to, um, to, uh, 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 to deal with uh, difficult situations and, and objectionable um, actions. And they sh- you should not do what Elisha did, because when Gehazi did something wrong, which we'll see, he pushed him away with two hands. And a famous said Yoshua ben Perachia, uh, pushed away Yeshua Notsri. That's the, the, the founder of our uh, cousin religion. Um, and it was one of his students. And because Yeshu did something wrong, which we'll see, um, however, instead of uh, objecting to it, but also giving him a way back, Yeshua uh, ben Pedachia, his teacher, pushed him away completely. And because Yeshua had no way back, so he said, you know what, let me go and I'm going to reject uh, Judaism totally, go, go to Avodah Zarah, found a new religion, and the rest is history. So it's all because of this, right, for this, um, uh, this moment at the beginning. I should add a quick note here that this story actually does not appear in some editions of the printed Talmud because it was removed by censors. Uh, these would either be Christian censors or Jews who were afraid that if Christians found it, because they would look through these books and they found something against uh, that spoke against uh, their um, uh, their uh, founder, uh, then they uh, the Christians would come and burn the entire Talmud and uh, cause a lot of trouble. And so therefore, uh, this was expunged from some versions of the Talmud. But you can see right here, um, see in the um, in the regular printed Vilna Shas that you buy now, um, it is in fact in there, except that it doesn't mention Yeshu's name. Uh, it just says. Uh, a, a student. So, therefore, without mentioning his name, then that would uh, prevent the censors from knowing uh, who it's about. But in fact, if you look at the Venice edition and the Munich manuscript and Oxford and the Vatican manuscript, all of them do have Yeshu Hanosri and they have the story in full. So, this is in fact the story does belong here, and it is a story that did mention Yeshu originally.
Okay, so these two very important stories. Elisha Mahi. What happened with Elisha? The story there, as we said before, is Naaman, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the foreigner. He got Sarat. So what am I going to do? And so the, this maidservant that we, uh, the Jewish maidservant said, go to the Israelites. And then um, Elisha uh, got involved and Elisha said, don't go dunk in the Jordan and you'll be fine. And he did. And then he was healed and he was so thankful. Naaman was so thankful. He went to Elisha and said, please, let me give you a gift. I want to show my thanks. And uh, Elisha says, I will not accept any gift. Right? He's doing it totally. L'shem shamayim. He made a, ter- a wonderful Kiddush Hashem. Uh, Naaman was, became monotheistic. And that was, that was uh, uh, thanks enough. So uh, Elisha, right, to his credit, did, did not accept any gift. But then Gehazi, who was the, um, uh, the, the student of uh, and... Um, uh, the uh, um, the uh, servant of um, uh, Elisha, Gehazi said, "Oh, what a shame to reject these gifts. He has nice gifts for, to give." And so after Naaman left, Gehazi ran after ran after him and said, "Actually, you know what? We'll take some gifts." And so Gehazi goes and and bring and takes some of the gifts when Elisha said not to. And so. Um, Elisha knew exactly what happened. He says, right, I know what happened. Did my not heart go? And when he turned back from his chariot to meet you, Naaman, right, saw you running after him. And, um, and, and then Elisha rebukes Gehazi. Um, and he says, this is the time to take money, to take garments and olives and vineyards and sheep and, ser- and servants and maidservants. What are you going to do with this money that he gave? You're going to go buy stuff and gain uh, uh, monetarily from this good act that we did? You ruined the whole thing. So Elisha gives very severe criticism to, to Gehazi. And you can understand Elisha because Gehazi really went out of line um, in going ahead and, uh, and taking money when Elisha expressly said, um, we're not going to take money for this. So we understand that Gehazi was upset. However, still, he pushed him away with two hands and didn't allow Gehazi a way back. Okay, now we ask, what did, uh, what, what, what did Gehazi take? Right? He took a little money, a little garments. Like, it's not like he took that much. It was, uh, you know, a, a sum, but not, not such a big deal that he should have been so upset. So, at that time, Elisha happened to be learning some of the laws about the eight creeping uh, animals that are not kosher. And this is what they were learning together. And so, uh, it just happened to be what they were learning. And so, when he saw what Gehazi did, um, he said, Rasha, you are, he called him evil, an evil person. And he says, all this, this merit from this learning, um, you're going to get now, and you're going to lose your olam haba. Okay. And furthermore, not only in Olam Abba, but even now, the leprosy that Naaman had that was healed is going to be upon you, Gehazi, for taking this money. Now, a following story uh, soon after this story in Sefer uh, Melachim is a story about four people who are Mesoraim, a whole story over there. It doesn't identify the people. Rabbi Yochanan connects the stories together and said, you know who those Mesoraim were? 
It was Gehazi and his children, because right before it says, uh, uh, Elisha says, you're going to get Sadat. And so it makes sense to connect these um, four Mesoraim to those four people. Okay. Now, the next story after that, Elisha comes to Damascus. Why did he go there? So he realized that he, 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 really, um, he really gave it, he was too harsh to Gehazi, and he went there to tell Gehazi that he can, he can repent, uh, try to get him to repent. But Gehazi refused. Elisha said, repent, right? You did something wrong. Repent, and you know, you can come back. And Gehazi said, no, I don't believe you, because you yourself taught me that anyone who not only sins, but causes others to sin, there's no possibility of making Teshubah. You can make Teshubah if you sin yourself, but then you go, you want to make other people sin. So now, right, how, how are you going to control, what are you going to do about their actions and their the actions that, the ripple effect of, uh, of, of spreading sin around. So uh, you already taught me that. So therefore, I really have no possibility of Teshuvah. So I'm not even going to bother. I may as well just continue being a Rasha. My Avad, what did Gehazi do that he caused other people to sin? Because so far I just said that he took some money. An amazing thing. He took Evan Shoevet, which seems to be a magnet, right? It's a stone that can pull, that has attractive force. And he was, um, and using uh, these magnets, he was able to take the Egel that Yerovam, Yerovam, the uh, evil king from the north who set up uh, uh, golden calves so that the people would stay in the north and not go to Yerushalayim. He got one of these calves to float magically. It wasn't magic. It was by, by uh, magnets. You know, we, we can do this today with very sophisticated and strong magnets. But apparently he was able to make to, to suspend this metal in the air with magnets. And because he did that, everybody saw the calf flying. And they said, wow, this is a miracle. And they started to uh, worship the calf even more than they had been doing before. And so you, you see here, not only did he sin, but he uh, caused other people to sin. Or a different, a similar interpretation um, is that Gehazi uh, uh, put the name of God's name um, on the mouth of the uh, of the um, uh, golden calf of Yerovam, and that allowed it to speak. And it was saying, Anuchi, the first two commandments, as if the calf was saying, um, I am the one that took you out of Egypt. Have no other gods. I am your God. And when people saw that, a miracle. Um, so they said, oh, this is really the, must be the, the actual God. And then they were worshiping Avodah Zarah even more than they had before. So this is, um, this is the terrible sin. And so once Gehazi did that, he knew that there's no pos- he thought that there's no possibility for him to make Teshuvah. What led him to do such a terrible thing? Well, one thing led to another. He started off just doing a small evil deed by going and taking uh, some money. He's like, that's a shame. You know, we helped out Naaman. He's offering some, uh, some coins. So why not take it? Well, he didn't take that much. It was, he went against his teacher. It was a serious thing, but, you know, not, 
um, not the end of the world, um, but because Elisha reacted so strongly, said, you have no olam haba, you have no olam hazeh, you and your children are mesora'im. He really gave, called him a rasha, really gave it to him. He said, okay, I have no hope, I may as well go over to the dark side. And so, indirectly, Elisha caused uh, this to happen by pushing Gehazi away so strongly. Another interpretation of Gehazi's sin and in, in uh, that he uh, caused the public to sin is that he would push away sages from coming to learn from Elisha. He was kind of the gatekeeper and people would come and say, we want to uh, attend uh, the classes by Elisha. We want to come to his school. And he said, no, no, you're not worthy go away, it's full, and he caused them not to come. So he caused uh, Torah not to be learned. Um, and where do we see that? Because in a um, uh, uh, story right there in that context, it says that, that the B'nai Nevi'im told Elisha, oh, the place is too small for us, right? In the, the B'nai Nevi'im, the people that are coming to study Nevu'ah, right, had no, had no place. We need a bigger area. So how come all of a sudden there was no space? It means that there were fewer students before and now there are more students. How come there were more students uh, uh, now? Uh, because before that's when Gehazi was around and he was rejecting all these students and sending them away. Once Gehazi was punished and went away, now all those students came. And so now we realized um, how many more students came. This is reminiscent of um, Rabban Gamliel, who when it was he, he was Nasi, he wouldn't let the students into the door of the Bet Midrash. And when they deposed him, all the students came in and more Torah, all the problems were solved and more Torah was taught. Right? So this is similar. One should, one, you have to have uh, admission standards for sure, um, but you shouldn't keep them too high because it may keep out people that are very worthy and can learn Torah and can contribute. Um, okay, so that shows that until now, until then, it was not cramped. So that's another interpretation. He was Choteh and Mahati, and that's why he at least believed that he has no pos- he had no possibility of Teshuvah at that point. Okay, that's the story of Gehazi. But now we mentioned under another example. Yeshua ben Perachia, he also pushed away Yeshua Nosri with both hands. When King Yanai, um, uh, that's uh, Alexander Yanai, one of the evil Hasmonean kings, he was a Sadducee, the famous story when people uh, came and he uh, poured the water, a libation on his feet. Um, on Sukkot, and the people there, the Perushim, uh, saw that and were upset and pelted him with stones. So, in retaliation, Alexander Yanai uh, was uh, killed, crucified 800 of the sages. So, very, very evil person. Um, um, now, he, uh, Shimon ben Shatach was able to hide um, so that he was saved. And he happened to be a brother, brother's-in-law. Shimon ben Shatach's um, uh, 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 sister was married to um, Alexander Yanai. Okay, so he was able to save his life in that way. Now, another sage at the time, um, he ran away to Alexandria to save his life. After the coast was clear and there was peace, so um, Shimon ben Shatach sent a letter 
to Yoshua ben Pedachia. Um, and the letter was as if one city was talking to another. A letter from me, Jerusalem, holy, the holy city, to you, Alexandria, Achoti, my sister, as if the two cities are sister cities. My husband is, in, is, is within you, uh, referring to Yoshua ben, ben Pedachia. And I am empty. In other words, Jerusalem says, I need you back. You're a great sage. And, uh, you know, you ran away for your life, but now everything, uh, peace is, is, is here. So please come back. A nice, beautiful, poetic um, a letter. Amar shema mina havale shelama. So I got the message uh, that there, oh, there's peace, so now I can return. Maybe it was written in a kind of code language that he would understand in case it was intercepted by someone. Now, um, on the way back, he's on, he's on the way back, it's a long journey, and so he stops in, he stops off at a certain inn. Uh, the innkeeper uh, knew that this is the famous Rabbi Yoshua ben Perachia, and, he, uh, and the innkeeper gave him great honor. And Yeshua ben Perachia was sitting and was praising at the inn and saying, What a great host, what a great inn. Thank you so much for your hospitality. And it happened to be at the inn, staying there at the same time, was Yeshu Hanosri. A quick note about his name, right? Yeshu is short for Yehoshua. That his name was simply Yehoshua, or short Yeshua, or even shorter Yeshu, like Joshua, we shortened to Josh. That was his name, and one is permitted to say his name because it's simply, it's in the Talmud. The Talmud says his name. Um, so you see that it's permitted, um, but, his, uh, but his last name is really just as a translation of Mashiach, because for those who believe that he was Mashiach, they added that last name. But in fact, his, um, his, his uh, last name was Hanotsri, meaning from, from Nazareth, which is where he was from. Uh, so that this is, it's okay to call him uh, this name, Yeshu Hanotsri. That's his first name, Josh from Nazareth. Okay. Um, when you know, usually when people don't don't want to say his name and they uh, um, it, the, the halacha of not saying one's name because it says Shem Elohim Acherim Lord one's not allowed to say the name of foreign gods. That means in a swear or giving it importance, um, but to say his name in a story, as the Talmud it does here, or as the Tanakh does, it mentions names of Baal and Asherah. These are all names of of gods, um, which are also uh, false gods, but permitted to say. If you're reading Navi, Navi'im are saying what was wrong with them and not, but don't believe them and not giving them significance or importance and certainly not swearing in their name. Okay, so that's it's important to note that his name is uh, does appear here and can be said depending on um, the context. And so Yeshu is there and says, um, after he hears all this praise, he, t- he tells Rabbi Yoshua ben Perachia, my teacher, he was his teacher, he said, what do you, what do you mean? You're, you're praising the host, but look at the hostess, hostess's eyes. Her eyes are kind of narrow. She's not very pretty. Tells Yeshu, this is what you're looking at. I was talking about the praise of look how they treat their guests, look how they they give you know uh, uh, great honor to, to to me. I'm very happy here. It's a good good pillows, good beds, good food. And what are you looking at? You're looking at the host. It happened to be in those times, <coughs> um, often the 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 inn and the innkeeper 
they would they would do uh this you know uh, um, uh, immoral acts with the guests so you know he see Yeshua was looking at the how beautiful is the innkeeper oh she's kind of ugly he says Rasha this is what you're thinking about takes out 400 shofars why is he traveling with 400 shofars he's not there's an exaggeration when you would excommunicate someone you have to announce announce the excommunication so you do that by blowing a shofar and so he built the shofar said this yeshu is excommunicated Yeshu felt bad and every day he would come and says I made Teshuvah I'm sorry you're right I shouldn't I was looking at her, her beauty uh, I said something mean about her Lashon Hara wrong you know wrong uh, uh, priorities and uh, I, I shouldn't have done that I want to make Teshuvah but Rabbi Yosheba was very strict and did not accept his Teshuvah so you see right Rabbi Yosheba pushed him away with two hands of course you have to object it's not, not proper thing to be thinking about and, and saying but nevertheless he should have pushed with the left hand but allowed a way back with the right hand he learned his lesson one day was reading or say was saying Shema and Yeshu came to him and uh, again to apologize and that day finally he said you know what I'm gonna accept him back um, but since he was saying Shema, he couldn't talk. So he said that he made some kind of hand gesture, like, you know, one minute or something, or, you know, come back, go, go away, come back later. He made a hand gesture, but it was misunderstood. Yeshu thought, he's saying, go away, I'm not accepting your uh, apology, your teshuvah. And Yeshu said, that's it, he's not accepting my teshuvah, I have no chance, I'm never going to be accepted back. Um, and therefore, I may as well go to the dark side. And he went, took a brick, and started worshipping it, and did Avodah Zarah. Then after that, came to him and said, Make Teshuvah. I learned from you, my teacher, that anyone who sins and causes others to sin, he will not get a chance to make Teshuvah. And now I already made, uh, already caused other people to sin. Where do we see that he caused other people to sin? But so far, he just said something uh, negative. But then afterwards, when he saw that he was not being accepted, he went and did sorcery. He got the masses and uh, uh, incited them to do. He did avodah He convinced other people to do avodah and he caused the uh, people to sin. And so that's it. He at least um, uh, he believed um, that there was no possibility for him to make teshuvah. And so again, here, what a powerful message that because his teacher pushed him away. Yes, which he should have pushed him away for doing something wrong, but he should have also um, avent- uh, also allowed a way for Teshuvah to affirm to come back. And because Yeshu ben was too strict and pushed him away with both hands, so then Yeshu, who originally was a rabbi, was a student, um, so he went uh, over to the dark side totally and started 
a different religion, one that ended up uh, being the greatest cause of persecution and killing and pogroms and crusades um, that have tortured the Jews for centuries and centuries. So that is quite a powerful lesson. Tanya Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer, Yeser, Tinok ve'isha, Tehesemol doha ve'amin mekarebet. And we conclude with a general uh, teaching that regarding Yeser Hara, um, children and women, uh, if uh, a if a person or a father or a husband needs to uh, uh, reject, they should reject with one hand, but the right hand, they should bring it close. Yes, meaning if people have physical desires, you can't reject totally your physical desires. If you try to do that, then you're going to break. Uh, rather, a person should um, allow his physical desires to, uh, to he should... Um, allow himself to um, uh, uh, achieve his appetite in permitted ways. You have a desire for meat, good, eat kosher meat. You have a desire for um, uh, for a woman, then marry her and have her per permitted relations. So you shouldn't be a total ascetic and say, I'm never going to get married, I'm never going to eat meat, I'm never going to uh, do anything. Uh, so you have to do it in a permitted way, so that way you reject the, the, the bad ways of doing it, but you um, allow the positive ways of doing it. And the same thing with with uh, taking care of a household, uh, with family, uh, something going wrong, you have to reject it, but you have to keep a way back so the person can learn their lesson and they know that if there's, they, they know, oh, there's a way back, I can make Teshuvah and then they can uh, come back and be whole again, which are really beautiful lessons and uh, great challenges. The next Mishnah in this very long daf, Nimsa HaHoreg, Ad Shelo If they found the killer, he was discovered. Now, Eglatufa only only applies when we don't know the killer, an unknown murderer. But now we we set aside this animal, and now we found the murderer. So if the uh, neck was not broken yet, then you can let the animal go, and it can go graze among the herd back to normal. However, if the neck was already broken, then it should be buried in that spot and treated the same way as a, as a regular Egladufa because in the first place, Egladufa comes because of a Sefek. We're not, we don't know who the murderer is. And uh, so it did atoned for the uh, whatever what the for the um, uh, for the the lack of oversight um, for the for the fact that blood was spilled so it fulfilled its purpose and therefore it continues to be considered the same way you wouldn't be allowed to uh, grow things there um, similar to sota that also comes because of a safek um, uh, so this egladufa uh, has many parallels. To sota, which makes sense why it's here. Um, and now, in this case, when they already broke the neck, and then you find the killer. So we just mentioned that the the calf still is buried there, and that killer, he's not off the hook. He still gets capital punishment, right? You don't say, oh well, this is my replacement. This is my symbolic uh, sacrifice here, right? So now I can go home. No, once you find the killer. He still gets the death penalty. Well, the Gemara will give her a source. Ayed ehad omer, ra'iti etahoreg, ve'ayed ehad omer, lo ra'iti. Now, regarding all these cases, um, uh, how do you know when the killer is found, right? Based how what how much testimony do you need? 
in order to not do a gladufa. This is a different level of testimony than giving capital punishment. For capital punishment, you need two witnesses, absolutely, right, uh, like any case of capital punishment. Um, but to not do a gladufa, even one witness is sufficient. Um, now, what if this contradictory testimony, however? Uh, so one test, one uh, witness says, I saw the killer. And one says, no, you did not see it, right? You could not have seen it. Um, or, Isha omeret ra'iti, v'isha omeret lo ra'it, hayu orfin. Or, the first case is if it's a valid male witness. Here it's a, a female witness. Um, said One says, I saw it. One says, no, you did not see it. So, because it's one against one, they cancel each other out. And... We don't know the murderer, and we do a gladufa. One minute says, I saw the murderer. Two said, no, you don't. So all the more so there, the two is going to cancel the one, and you would do a gladufa, because we don't know the murderer. Two people said, we saw the murderer, and one says, no, you didn't see it. Well, again, two witnesses is, is going to be the max. Uh, and there's absolute proof, and so we're not going to ignore the one witness, and therefore we know who the murderer is, and we are not going to do it. Uh, we're not going to do Eglarufa. And here it doesn't matter if the murderer is uh, is caught, convicted. If it's known, then you don't do Eglarufa. Uh, on this theme, we note that at some point in time, there were a lot of murderers. They were all around, and then, therefore, they said no more, the rabbi said no more at all, um, because there were a number of known murderers. And so, even though there were bodies that were found here and there, uh, that and the, and we don't know in particular who did it, but since there were a number of known murders, it was like a, you know, a, a most wanted list, and we said, these murderers are going around, so the murderers were known, and therefore, where they couldn't be caught, they were, you know, thugs, and this seems to be, could be around the time of the um, revolution against the rebellion against the Romans, and there were people that were these kind of thugs, um, revolutionary leaders that were going and killing anyone who was get political, polit not, not only killing Romans, but even other Jews, um, uh, like the Sicarii, who we know would go stab people who wanted to make peace with the Romans. So these were really like, you know, uh, ancient uh, terrorists. And so, therefore, when these they, when they proliferated, proliferated, uh, they the rabbi said, okay, there's no more gladufa because these are known murderers. For example, there was this one man who had man who had two names, Eliezer ben Dinai, and he also went by Tchina ben Pirisha. Maybe he had a you know a, a disguise and he changed his name to try to evade the authorities um, and the rabbi. But the, the people would call him the son of a murderer. He was a known public murderer. This guy is also mentioned by Josephus, a contemporary of Josephus, who was the head of a, a revolutionary uh, group um, that would go and kill uh, people, uh, stir up rebellion against the, the Romans, and kill lots of other Jews who were their political enemies. You know, you had lots of different political groups, um, and even if they all wanted the same thing, they had so much infighting, they would kill each other, they would kill um, 
people um, uh, like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who wanted to make peace, right? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai himself was almost killed uh, by such rebellious, rebellious uh, Jews at the gate when he tried to escape the city of Jerusalem. So this was a terrible time when so many murderers were around, but we know who the murderers were. We even have this guy's name. And so therefore we don't do a glad, we didn't do a gladufa anymore. Now we're going to have other statements that are in the similar formula. When uh, there are a lot of adulterers pr proliferated, so they stopped doing sota. Why? Um, uh, because because um, uh, the test only works if the husband is innocent. He did everything properly and uh, never uh, committed adultery. Then the sota waters will work to test the wife. However, if the husband himself um, is immoral, then it doesn't work. And because at this time, the adulterers as men were so much, as it says in Hosea, I will not punish your daughters when they commit hardly, nor your daughters-in-law, and not your wives either, because they, the fathers and husbands, consort with zonot, and therefore um, it will not work, not for their, not, and the Gemara will explain, not for their wives, not for their daughters or daughters-in-law either. So because the men were so immoral, therefore the whole sota process was stopped. Other things are stopped. Yosef ben Yo'ezer and Yosef ben Yehuda, these were great, great sages, and they were, as we would call today, Renaissance men. Uh, they knew everything. They knew Torah, they knew technology, they knew medicine, they knew philosophy. And so that's called Ish Eshkolot, is a modern term for a Renaissance man, right? people who were ripe and uh, like a cluster that they had everything. So these were the last of those great people. As it says, there is no cluster tea nor first ripe fig that my soul desires. So taking this micha, not literally referring to these great cluster men. Um, so Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, he said, you know, people don't need to say the vidui uh, ma'asir anymore. Um, the Gemara will explain why. Is this a good thing? Because everybody was doing ma'asir so well that they didn't need to say it, or bad because they weren't doing ma'asir that they can't say it anymore. He also stopped these uh, awakeners. They would wake people up in the morning, but they were doing it the wrong way, and the strikers who, uh, as the Gemara will explain tomorrow, uh, would uh, bang the animals on the head before slaughtering them to stun them so that they wouldn't move, but that is not a good thing to do, so he stopped all that. And until their time, there were hammers that were striking during Chol HaMoed, because um, certain uh, laborers are permitted during Chol HaMoed, but it was making a lot of noise and ruining Chol HaMoed, so he stopped it. And in his time, uh, they also uh, stop, stopped the practice of asking about Demai, uh, because they made sure that people would be more careful about Demai, so you didn't have to ask about it. And all this will explain further tomorrow. How do we know that if you did a gladufa already, and so the blood of this calf uh, was spilt, of the um, then 
the, but still, uh, then you find the murderer that the murderer is not off the hook and he still gets capital punishment. Because the land will not be atoned for the blood that was spilled in it. Uh, Peshat is the blood of the victim that was spilt in it, but we're learning also it will not be atoned by the blood of the Agla Arufa either, but rather only by the dumb of the the blood of the spiller of the murderer. So if we don't have the murderer, then we have the second best we do Agla Arufa. But once we find the murderer, even after Agla Arufa, the murderer still has to count for his uh, for his transgression and gets capital punishment if convicted by two witnesses. So Gemara said, if it's one against one, one says, I saw the witness, I saw the murder, one says, no, you didn't see him, we cancel each other out. So we can infer that the reason why we, we say cancel each other out and you still do a gladufa is because they contradict each other. But what if not? What if you just had one witness who says, I saw the murderer, then he would be believed. Again, not for capital punishment, but he would be believed so to the extent that we don't do a gladufa. How do we know that? It says it is not known who did it? Then you do a gladufa. That's only if it's not known at all. But if one person knows, even if he's at the other side of the uh, uh, side of the world, then you do not do a gladufa. Only if it's not known at all. Adds that um, uh, could be a witness or it could be a member of the Sanhedrin themselves. One person who saw the murderer nefesh um, um, but the rest of the but they uh, but the rest of the Sanhedrin does not recognize him um, but it's only one, only one of the judges knows they still don't do don't do the Eglarufa because the judges have to come and say we our eyes did not see it so you have to be unanimous that none of them saw it um, and here one of the judges saw it so then that is the same no Eglarufa now we're going to go through a shaklava tariah we've had before. Um, and uh, the question here is, when one witness comes and says, I saw the murderer, and the other one says, no, you didn't, why should the second one be believed? After all, Ula said, any time that the Torah says one witness is believed, right? And you generally need two witnesses, but there are certain cases, like here, where one is believed. That one is taken to be to have the authoritative validity of two witnesses. Now, once we accept this testimony, then it's written down, it's solid, like two. And the next one witness that comes and says, no, you didn't see him, should not be able to go against the power of two witnesses. It was only one witness, but he has the power of two. So why we should actually believe that first one witness that he says he saw the murderer and not do a gladufa. So Allah says, you know what, this Mishnah, you have the wrong text and you have to change the text to if there's one, says one witness says, I saw it, and one says, no, you didn't see it, we actually do accept the first witness and we don't do a gladufa. And Rabbi Yisrael also said, change the text to say, no, you don't do it. So Allah can solve his problem. However, Rabbi Yisrael says, don't change the text. The Mishnah is good as it is, as we learned it. 
and they um, and they would do uh, they would do eglarufa. but doesn't accept that principle of ula, and therefore uh, should be that one is considered like two. And two should stand, and uh, we then we know the murderers, and we should not do a gladufa. La kashia kan bebata hat kan can explain. No, when Ulau gave his ruling, that was talking about when they come one after the other. One witness comes and says, "I saw the murder," and we accept it. We write it down. Case closed. And then later on, the next day, another witness comes and says, "No, he didn't see it." Then that witness does not have the authority to overturn the first witness, and he agrees, Rebichia would agree in that case, that you do not bring in Gladufa. Our Mishnah, however, is talking about when the two witnesses come at the same time. They both walk in on the same day at the same time, and one says, I saw the murder, one says, you didn't. So then the first witness is never even registered. He's never val- his, his testimony is never validated. And uh, therefore... They cancel each other out, and that's why we do Eglarufa in that case. So they came simultaneously. Good. So that's a good answer. But now we have a problem from the other cases of the Mishnah, that who's an inference from each case, the two inferences contradict each other. If one witness says, I saw the murderer, and two says, no, you didn't, so the two goes against the one, and they and and throws them out and they do a gladufa. We can infer from this that's only because it's two against one. So we can infer that if it was one and one, then the second one would not. And we're assuming that all this is simultaneous, right? Because we just established, according to the Bichia, that the whole Mishnah is about simultaneous. That should all be about the same case. And therefore, even when it's simultaneous, one against one, uh, you would not do a gladufa. This is a challenge to the bichia, right? This is a problem. The inference from this case. Now we say, well done, the tamich emasefa, but the bichia could be helped by the by the next case. When two said we saw, it, but one said we you know you did not see the murder, then we do not do aigla arufa because we accept the two original ones uh, that came. Two, uh, even if they come simultaneously, two is going to be better is going to be more important. So the fact that I had to give this case, we can infer that if it was one and one, then you would do a gladufa, one and one to come together, right? You They cancel each other out. Um, and you do egla adufa. So we have a problem here because we have a we have a, a contradiction between the for the inference from this case and the inference from the second case, right? Um, because the inference from the first case would be that when it's one on one, you do not do egla adufa. Um, and this would be a challenge of a but the second one has an inference that you do a gladufa, which would support a bichia. But in any case, we raise a new problem because now the Mishnah is self-contradictory, and how are we going to explain the Mishnah at all? So instead, rather the entire Mishnah must be talking about uh, people who are disqualified from being proper witnesses. And we're going to pl- uh, bring in the principle of Rabbi Nechemiah. Rabbi Nechemiah says, anytime that the Torah says you can um, uh, accept one witness, we follow a majority. See, when you have kosher witnesses, two men, 
then number doesn't matter. Once you have two, it's equal to 100, right? And, uh, uh, you know, we don't believe 100 um, uh, uh, kosher witnesses any more than you do two, because two is like 100%. Um, that's when it, when that's when you have kosher valid witnesses. But when you in cases when you accept invalid witnesses like women like one witness, then you follow the majority. And if you had two women, for example, against one man, that would be, they would win just like two men would win against one man. And therefore, that explains all the cases here. When you have the two versus one, right? These two cases, the two always win. Let's say we're talking about women, invalid witnesses, gamblers. Uh, so the two will always beat out the one. And when you have one and one that come simultaneously, then they also will cancel each other out. This resolves the contradiction that we noted before between these cases because according to this, these cases are brought to teach us this very lesson that when you have invalid witnesses and you follow the majority no matter what. And so that's why each of these cases is needed on, uh, in its, on its own. And when you have just one against one, then they just cancel each other out, certainly if they come simultaneously. Yet another uh, variation of the, of the same answer. In this variation, one valid witness, one man who's not a gambler and all that, um, is uh, is equal to even a hundred women that will come afterwards, right? So uh, one valid witness is equal to a hundred, and so they would, you know, be be of, of equal uh, validity. So it's not talking about one man. Rather, rather, it's talking about let's say all women came. Um, um, and one came first and said, I saw the I saw the murderer and then another woman or many women said, no, you don't. And now, according to that, we have to just adjust Rabbi Nechemia's statement to apply. Anytime the Torah believes one witness, you follow the majority and two women against one woman, as opposed to two women against one man that we had here. So in this version, two women and one man would be equal, but two women against uh, one uh, man, one woman, right, bishachat, would be like two men against one man. If they were valid witnesses, two beats one. So two for invalid witnesses, two uh, against one, the two wins. But if you had two women and one man, then that would be equal testimony, and you'd proceed as if, however, it would be equal testimony. And according to that, um, we have to uh, assume that the cases in our Mishnah are are talking about when a woman when all women come either one against one they cancel each other out or two against one and we follow the majority if it would be one ma valid ma male witness and two women then they would be tre be treated as equals um, and not not follow the majority all right, so we solved that problem. Last point about this. Why do I have to bring two cases where the um, where I have a majority? Right. The whole point of bringing those cases was to teach me this rule that for invalid witnesses you follow the majority. Just give me one of the examples. Right. Either that the two witnesses said they saw uh, the murderer, or that the two witnesses saw that no say that you didn't see the murderer. So why do I need both? 
Because I've had only one of the cases, I might have thought, when do I follow the majority? Only to be stringent and require doing a gladufa. Um, so that would be when the two say, we saw, when the one says, I didn't see it, and the two said, uh, one says, I saw the murderer, and the two said, no, you didn't see it, and therefore we throw it out and we follow the majority and we require it. So maybe over there, lechumra, we would require, but lekula, if the two said that we saw the murder and one said we didn't, maybe since they're all invalid witnesses, um, we should say, well, you know, do it anyway, do that gladufa anyway. So that we need that second case to teach us that even there, since the majority of invalid witnesses said, said that they saw the murderer, we will not do the Eglarufa, and that's a kula. So that's why we need both of these cases to teach us this very special law that in invalid test invalid witnesses we follow a majority. Next, when there were too many murderers, known murderers, they stopped doing Eglarufa. Because we only do Eglarufa because we have an uncertainty. We don't know the identity. But once there were known murderers, even if we didn't know exactly who, who, when, did this particular murder, murder, uh, murder but because they're known, Oh, we know sometimes, you know, like, you know, this uh, uh, gang uh, did the murder, but you don't have evidence, so you can't uh, convict them. So it was kind of it was known who was doing this. Which explaining the Mishnah, explaining the Mishnah, when there were a lot of adulterers, they stopped doing Sota. Why? Because um, the Pasuk there regarding Sota says, and the man will be cleared of transgression, and that woman shall, uh, shall bear her transgression. So you see the sota only works when the man is himself innocent. Then the waters will check the woman. But if the man is himself not innocent, if he did something wrong, if he was um, not faithful, then the waters will not be effective on his wife. And the pasuk in Hosea says that everybody was committing adultery, all the men. And therefore, sota waters were banned because they're not going to work. Now, why do you have to bring an extra, uh, this extra pasuk? It's adding that it maybe you'll think that his transgression, the husband, that will make the uh, the sota waters for his wife not effective, but for his daughters um, and for his sons and daughters, maybe it, maybe it won't affect them. Who said it will affect them? That's why the pasu comes in in Hosea. Uh, because a father is immoral, that will also undo the effectiveness for his daughters of the Sota waters for a daughter and for his sons, such that if his son and if his daughters in law um, were not faithful, then it will the Sota waters will not work for them. And furthermore, the Pasuk adds adds more uh, information and says, I understand if the husband committed adultery with a married woman, then he committed adultery, and that's why the Sota waters won't work. But what if he did a lower uh, immorality and he only had relations with an unmarried woman? So that's why the Pasuk continues and says, Tashima. 
כי הם עם הזונות יפרדו, ועם הקדשות יזבחו, because these men, they go and consort with, with זונות, קדשות, these holy prostitutes, um, who may be single, but still is, uh, is immoral. מי ואה, and will not, and will cause the sotah, what is not to work. מי ואם לא יבין ילבט, and the rest of the pasuk says, and the people was without understanding, and are distraught. So Navi is explaining as follows. If you, men, are, act properly yourselves, then you're a good role model, then you have moral authority to rebuke um, those, those around you, um, and then you have this tool that you can go and check the, why the woman in the family and keep them on the right path and know whether they sinned or not. But if you yourselves are immoral, then you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And because of that, you can't go and tell your wife, your daughter, daughter-in-law, and accuse them when you are not moral yourself. And because you don't have this tool to check if they were faithful or not, you're going to be distraught, have, not, have no understanding, and you're going to be suspicious and not know, did she sin, did she not sin, and you won't be able to rectify the situation. Um, and so that is a consequence of their own sin. We end off the uh, daf with a series of uh, further agadot that have the same formulation, Misharabu. Misharabu ba'aleh ha'na'ah nit'ah ve'tu ha'dinin v'nitikad kilu ha'ma'asim ve'en no'ach ba'olam. When people who love, uh, uh, desire physical, uh, material things, so these are people that are drawn after that and will, if they're judges, are not going to pay close attention to justice, but will accept bribes. And therefore, the law became twisted, these became corrupted, and there was no comfort in the world. If there's no justice system, then nobody can uh, live in peace. When people were showing favoritism in the law, judges are showing favoritism to one litigant or the other, then they stop fulfilling, do not a judge, may not fear in the face of every, any man. He shall not respect uh, one person or the other, not the rich, not the poor. But now they are showing favoritism. And the yoke of heaven, they, they took off of themselves Instead, the judges accepted upon themselves the yoke of flesh and blood. They would answer to a powerful person, someone who, um, someone who bribed them, rather than um, doing things for the, for the yoke of, with the yoke of heaven on their shoulders. Israel. Yet whispers in judgment. They would advise the judges surreptitiously. You know, say this, do this. Um, and so there, from that time, anger uh, appeared and increased in Israel. Hashem judges in the midst of the uh, of the judges, right? The, the judges, human judges, are supposed to be the emissaries and act in the name of God. And God is present when judges act um, um, justly and correctly. Uh, they're doing the highest work. However, when they are not, then Shekhinah leaves them. When people 
started following their greed, so then uh, increased people who would say to bad that it's good and call good bad. And step comes after either the previous step when people said that good and bad is good and good is bad, then everybody starts saying, whoa, whoa, terrible things, right? The whole society uh, uh, goes, uh, goes downhill and people suffer. When people who were drawing their spitter, they would like spit a lot and just, you know, disgusting, showing how haughty they are, right? Look how I look down and spit upon everybody else. So then we had more haughty people. And then people didn't want to be students because to be a student, you have to be humble and want to uh, learn. And so there was no students. And then the Torah was going around. Who will study me? Who will study the Torah? And when these haughty people who are all proud and they, from the outside, they look like they're impressive. Um, so the, uh, the, 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 the women of Israel wanted to, would would be marrying them um, because in this generation people only see the face external appearances they see a person who is dressed nice and looks rich and um, and is all uh, high on uh, high on themselves and so people look up to them and uh, then they want to marry them. But now we have a contradiction because Master said that someone who's haughty. Not only do other people hate him, nobody, nobody likes an arrogant person, even his own family members will not accept him. A person who is uh, haughty will not abide, meaning he will not be accepted even by the people that he lives with. His own family says, oh, this guy is so arrogant. My husband is so arrogant. So this is a contradiction to here where it says that the young woman would want to marry these haughty people. And the answer is, At first, when they're first going out on dates, they say, oh, look, this person is so great, so important, he's so, all right, look up to him. But then once you actually marry, once they're actually married and they get to know him and you see he's just he has nothing uh, nothing to support his arrogance and he's really just a low life so then she's disgusted by that haughtiness uh, when this uh, tax on homeowners uh, was implemented to and given to the judges the judges would impose everybody has to pay them homeowners have to pay them um, and then from from merchandise, then so it's kind of a bribery. So this is bribery and corruption uh, increased, and good stopped. When judges said, "I accept your uh, your favor, right? I hold your favor," and so they're accepting pe- uh, people to give them bribes or do them do good things for them. Then everybody does whatever they want. It's complete anarchy because you can go and commit crimes and do all terrible things, and then you do a favor for the judge, and you get off the hook. Those who are those who are, are are lowly were raised up and honored, and those who deserve honor were put down. Malchuta azla avla, and the monarchy, the, the, our sovereignty, went increasingly on the decline. Um, when uh, those 
who were stingy and were and and were stealing um, and greedy for profit when they increased so then uh, people who um, uh, who were hardening hardening their heart and closing their hands from giving money increased right when people are, are are stingy and don't care then they're not going to lend and then they violate the the Torah law that says be careful don't harden your heart and uh, uh, close your hand if your brother is in need you have to lend lend to him and if you don't lend to him then you violate Hisha but because people were so stingy. They violated this law. Yeshua talks about women who uh, stretched oh, their neck high and had wanton eyes being seductive. And then there were more, more sotas because they caused there to be more adultery. And then there were more sota cases. But when there were so many, as we said before, once adultery became so... Um, so when like when only these women, let's say they were married women, and so they went and did this. So if they were sinning, so so ta waters would work. But then it went it went so out of hand that the men also were um, were immoral, and then the so ta waters were not working at all. Uh, when people who accepted uh, uh, gifts. Uh, increase so then the days and years decreased. He who hates gifts will live, but when you accept gifts, then you have to then you're beholden to those people, and then you're going, uh, especially if you're a judge, just taking bribes. When those who are boast, boastful of heart. Uh, increased, so it increased um, a dispute or factions in Israel. In other words, when people are arguing about a halacha or anything, if they act, uh, it's good. It's good to to argue, um, but you have to do so out of humility that you want to actually learn. But when people are arguing just to prove how how smart they are and how great they are, then no one's going. They're not seeking after the truth, so they're actually going to listen and learn from each other. So this is machloket shelodeshem shamayi and then machloket increases. The word machloket can mean controversy. It also can mean factions uh, uh, or sects, groups. And so there were more and more different factions in Israel, uh, which was terrible. When the students of Shemayin Hillel uh, did not uh, uh, serve their rabbi sufficiently. Students in those days would not only learn from their masters, but they would also serve them, carry their books, their uh, um, you know, uh, uh, help them uh, with with chores, uh, uh, put on their shoes, right, all kinds of things, because that's part of the service. It's like. Um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, being being a, a full student and following them around and doing everything for them, and so that would be a full strong. Um, uh, strong relationship in which the student would also learn from everything the master, every single detail. But then at some point they were just like they would come to class and pay attention more or less. But then not uh, were not serving them uh, sufficiently, so they lost out on the details of what their teachers were teaching them. 
And because of that, so then they started forgetting those details. No, I thought he meant this. I think he meant that. They were not learning and taking notes as carefully as they were before. And so more controversy and more factions increased. And the Torah tragically became like two Torahs. You see, beforehand, during the time of Hillel and Shammai themselves, they only disagreed about a few things. Uh, There was a relative unity, at least within the Pharisees. Um, But then after that... um, because of a lack of study and uh, and uh, administering to their teachers, um, the they they lost more and more, and that's how we it became it, it turned into two separate Torahs altogether. When those who received charity from the non-Jews increased, so then Israel was above and the non-Jews were low and Israel was in and they were uh, out. Now, this sounds like it's a good thing, but it's a euphemism. It means the opposite, um, that because they were accepting uh, charity from non-Jews, it means that the Jews were not taking care of themselves, right? The rich Jews should take care of the poor Jews. The community should be self-sustaining and not have to go and accept money from non-Jews. And so that is a sign of that internal weakness, not taking care of each other. And so from that point on, Israel actually became low and the uh, non-Jews became uh, went up. Uh, the Jewish people were behind and the non-Jews were ahead. Um, and so that uh, completes the series of Agadot. And then we're going to see tomorrow, it will go back to the Mishnah and continue discussing those topics. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.